listening to The Rick Z Show. I'm your host, Rick Z, and on today's episode, we have a great musician, a wonderful guy, Hudson Valley's own Tim Herman. Tim, welcome to The Rick Z Show. Rick, thanks for having me. It's great to see you, by the way. Uh, you know, I, I haven't seen you in a while. We ran into each other in the studio, and I thought, I got to get you on the show. We got lots to talk about. We do? <laughs> we do? <laughs> So, on that note, so, so glad we edit the show. <laughs> I it's, think that should stay in. It's never live. That's funny. That, that will stay in. Yeah. yeah. That's hysterical. All right, great. Well, I thought we had a lot to talk about. No, no actually we do. But I, I just want to back up a little bit before we get to anything that I know about and just talk about your drumming and how you got started in your childhood. I mean, most people gravitate to an instrument. If you're going to play one, I gravitated toward guitar. Somebody else might gravitate toward drums or piano or whatever. Why did you gravitate toward the drums? Well, actually, there's a really simple answer to that. When I was young, as in five, six years old, I knew then that I was going to play in a band. And I can't tell you why I knew it, but I knew it. I think, you know, playing around in the basement, making believe you're in a band and that sort of thing. I also knew that the instrument I was going to play, I was going to sit down to play it. I had no desire to stand and be in front of the band. Hmm. So, fast forward to seven, eight years old, standing in the music store with my parents while my older brother was on instrument number three taking a lesson, me going, pulling on my you know, parents' coattails saying, buy me that Farfisa organ over there, you know, a double manual with pedals and a little amplifier and get me a teacher. That's what I want to play. The answer was no. You'll start in school like your brother did. He's already on instrument number three. Those things cost a fortune, and we can't just throw that kind of money away. There was no piano in my house. I didn't grow up really in a musical household. And my father didn't own the family business at that point, so he wasn't in a position to just go buy me an instrument. So fast forward, third grade comes around, you choose your instrument. I chose drums because it was the only thing I thought you could start in public school that would transfer over to playing in a band. My Parents knew I was serious by fifth grade. In sixth grade, they got me a private teacher. And um, when my father took the business over, he went to the local music store in Poughkeepsie, which then was, uh, well, there was two, but at the time it was Music Town down on the South Road near IBM, mm -hmm. and uh, bought me a brand new set of Slingerland drums for my 12th birthday. Oh, nice. You know, so, you know, by today's standards, that would be like, you know, walking into any you know, high-end music shop and dropping 4500 bucks on some drums. What color were they? Were they those blue sparkle ones? They were know? champagne sparkle, oh, actually. Man. Yeah, which, That was big back then. Yeah, and it's retro, come back again, and I always hated the color, to be honest with you. So I did switch colors a little later when I could make my own money and buy a little larger set of Slingerland drums, and I went to black drums. And I, I played black drums for years. And I still do from time to time. If you see me out playing a, a big set of black Slingerland drums, those were my teachers in New York. So those are Sonny Igo's drums. And he was Benny Goodman's drummer, Woody Herman's drummer, the CBS television studio orchestra drummer. And the first you know, professional drummer noted for playing black drums right after World War II because everybody played white drums then or sparkle drums. Hmm. I didn't know that. And Sonny Igo, obviously legendary character. I know that you worked with him, and we'll get to that in a little while, but I, I still want to stay back a ways, at least in the 80s. 
when you started to actually make your own drums. It's the seventies. That was the seventies. I'm old. Wow. Uh, how old are you? Can can I ask? Sixty three. Sixty three. Okay. So back in the 70s, you started to make your own drums. You were endorsed by a company in Manhattan. They took out like a full-page ad. You know, backtracking up when I was, a, you know, growing up here in the... I'm from Hyde Park, so the Poughkeepsie area. I had a... My private teacher was a fellow named Charlie Morano. Charlie was a dear friend. He passed way too young. He had a ALS. But, I mean, we were close, as in we have the same birthday, 21 years apart. I played both his daughter's weddings. He's my son's godfather. Wow. He was uh, adamant that I start going to New York City and understanding the business a little bit more and um, sent me to the Professional Percussion Center, which was Frank Ippolito's shop that at the time was the largest drum shop in the world. And one of the three most famous in the country would be those folks, Frank's Drum Shop in Chicago, which was another Frank, and then the Hollywood Drum Shop out in, outside of L.A., I think it's in Anaheim or so. And that's the only one left of the originals is the Hollywood drum shop. Um, Frank passed in the 70s. But back to that, I uh, went to work for Frank when I had taken a year leave of absence from college. And I was a music ed major in college. And I had a propensity to work with tools just because I grew up in a garage. My family was in the automotive business for three generations and uh, started modifying instruments, um, learned that from a fellow named Al Duffy, who preceded me there at the drum shop. And Al also, Al and Frank held the patent. It was Al's design for the chain on a bass drum pedal. When you see a bass drum pedal today, rather than a cam and a strap, it was revolutionary in the 70s that they put a sprocket on it hmm. in a chain so it wouldn't break or stretch. And that was Al's design for Elvin Jones at the time because Elvin was breaking the straps all the time. They were either leather or nylon. The nylon stretched and went crazy and the leather just snapped. So from that, I uh, spent a lot of time with Al uh, dissecting his work and then I went over to visit him. He had left the drum shop by the time I worked there, but we had remained in contact and he was working at the Hinger Drum Company. So Fred Hinger was one of the most famous timpanists in New York City. And he also had a custom drum company that did timpani, true Dresden timpani, and unique snare drums used for the orchestral world. Billy Cobham played one of those snare drums in the Mahavishnu Orchestra. Had a very tight, almost gut sound to it. Yeah. That was one of those drums. From there, I became known for the custom snare drums. That's one of the reasons you see I know so many people from different sides of the industry isn't from my playing it's from my customization work. So I have a friend who calls, my, calls me a snare drum luthier, which is <laughs> you know, not quite the right term, but pretty much covers what I did. Do you know Steve Marnell? I do not. I'm very surprised. I mean, Steve is a great area drummer, uh, lived around here a long time. He makes his own drums as well. Uh, they're very successful. Guys like Steve Jordan buy his stuff, and they're really clever inventions. Like one time he showed me this one thing. I take a, a, like a, a stick drumstick and I hit the hi-hat and it'll make two hits it'll sound I've heard that yeah I have met him yeah well, you have met him okay now that you described that contraption yes I've met him your drums do you still make them I just built the first bottom-up snare drum that I have done since I left New York in the early 80s I had gone from the professional from the professional percussion center after Frank had passed away the writing was on the wall that the store wasn't going to stay 
in business. It, it needed him at the top, you know. That character of Frank was a main driving force. And Joe Casadas had the modern drum shop and wanted to expand his business, and I knew Joe. Joe lived in the Peekskill area. So I um, went to work for Joe and passed on what I knew and, and got him up and running, spent a few years with him, and then I left that part of my life behind. But I had promised myself on the way out that I wouldn't do any building that might impact those, you know, might impact Joe in New York. Yeah. So Joe retired and closed the place probably about eight, ten years ago. So I don't feel bad that I finally made a drum. And the drum I just finished is uh, Adam Nussbaum's. I'm doing another one now from my friend Bob McCready, who's a retired detective here in, in Poughkeepsie. Then I have a fiberglass drum I'm modifying now for... Uh, another friend you've got a lot of friends tim i want to talk about some of the the more interesting ones or some of the more well-known ones one of which you mentioned earlier is sonny igo wondering how you met him and and what your interaction was with him you studied together or, or studied, studied under him right? with him absolutely well i knew who sonny was growing up because he was all over the catalogs so he was in the downbeat ads he was in the zildjian ads he was in the slingerland ads and high school rolls around and Back to my teacher when I was a kid, young man, Charlie Morano, says to me one night, you, are you working this weekend? I'm like, no, no, I'm off. It's fair week. He goes, well, you need to go to the Dutchess County Fair Friday night and hear Sonny Igo. So that used to be, back when I was a kid, teenager, they had a concert every Friday night in Raphael's talent tent called the Giants of Jazz. And all the guys who came up and played in the ensemble had worked in the big band era, in the high-end big band era with the real guys, not the ghost bands, and then had gone into TV work. So these guys were all NBC, CBS, ABC, and uh, Channel 5 also had an orchestra. They would come up here and play. There was a fellow up here whose name I don't know that was a trooper who knew, I think, Chris Griffin, the trumpet player. And he put it together. And these guys came up every year, went to the Beekman Arms, got half blasted at lunch, you know, and went over there and, <laughs> and played a set. It, it was a riot. So I was probably 16, yeah, I would have been 16 years old, maybe 15, the first time I saw Sonny play. And it was right here in Rhinebeck. And uh, I remember my jaw dropping and seeing how relaxed he was behind the instrument and in his absolute command of playing the instrument known as the drum set to me some people call it a drum kit uh, i use set i'm old-fashioned it means the same it means the same thing i remember just saying to myself, that's how i want to do things so later in life when i wanted to uh study with him i got on the train i went to new york i went to the drum shop i talked to frank epolito one day in his office and i said you know i really need to know how to get a hold of this guy this is who I want to take lessons with. And he laughed. He said, good luck. He's got a four-year waiting list. You know, he, he teaches six days a week and has a four-year waiting list. Wow. Think about that back in the day. Wow. And he said he's got a program. You know, you're either going to go once a week or once every other week. And don't fight him. Do what he tells you to do. Here's his radio registry number. Here's the home number. Here's the number in a studio where he teaches in New York. He teaches half the time here and half the time in New Jersey. So I go home, and he looks at me and he goes, call him at night, you know, 7.30 or so. So I call one evening. You know, the rest was history. I, his, his wife, Claire, answered the phone first, and 
I got through her as the call screener. I got to him. You know, I learned later he was probably three martinis in. Doesn't matter. And uh, told him I had seen him at the fair, how I got his number. And he just laughed out loud. He was a very uh, larger-than-life character. And he just basically went, well, since you're a fan, I've got a couple openings. I just threw people out. Wow. You know, and here, <laughs> here's your choice. I just put you to the top of the list. Holy cow. Yeah. <laughs> so I um, went every other week to him. He was very you know, specific about what he wanted accomplished within that time frame. Keep in mind, back then I was playing three nights a week on a steady gig, working five days a week in the drum shop, and studying and trying to keep up with that. And how old were you at this time? 19. You were 19 years old. Were those expensive lessons? Yes. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. I bet and what did you learn? I wrote them off, though, because I was on the payroll. Oh, that's I was convenient. on the payroll at the Holiday Inn in Fishkill in the house band. I had Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday nights, five hours a night. You learn a lot on the bandstand working that much. Plus, when we had that gig, it was just a duo. We also were the house band for all the weddings and parties. So I was working a lot when, you know, everyone was then. I mean, bands were touring all over the place. Well, you were working. You you were a good drummer already at that point. What were you hoping to learn from Sonny, and what did you learn from I went I went to Sonny specifically to learn how to read a drum chart correctly in the sh in a show band or big band scenario. It's, it's a very different... Uh, task than than typically reading music you know uh, to a guitarist they said well I, I just need the chart well they mean they got a chord chart you know or the tab yeah. or whatever or just the form on one page to read a drum chart correctly you've you've got to have a little more breadth of knowledge to, rhythmically one probably should take a you know at least two semesters of music theory and one semester of conducting there's a drummer inside a big band or in a pit orchestra Yes, there's a conductor. However, it's on you and the bass player to keep that band in order. It's not on the leader. It's on the bass player and the drummer. And they, they have to be on the same page. And they've got to be phrasing the same way. they got to know what they're doing. they got to know the rhythm section. Yeah, and, but you're the, it's on you at that point. You know, and when the rest of the band starts to take off, if they're rushing, you got to do your best to hold it back. If, if it's going the other way, if they're starting to slow up, you got to do your best to keep it moving and it's not anything like we think of today with a click track where you go and you put the headphones on and you just bang it out you can't do it that way you have to be much more flexible as a musician mm. now you eventually went on to play some big band music yourself in fact with no less than sammy k orchestra yeah i've been lucky i've done the sammy k orchestra the jimmy dorsey orchestra I've done the, uh, what, who else have I played with in that genre? The, the Lawrence Welk Show Orchestra All-Stars, who were some of the nicest wow. people I ever worked with, which blew me away when I got to actually meet them, especially since we all grew up watching them on TV. You know, they were very nice folks and incredible musicians. I've worked with Mel Torme's son, Steve March Torme. I've done the Torme Sings Torme Show, where they go out with a dectet and do the Marty Page arrangements from, that his dad used to do. And that, my friend, is the biggest hot seat I've ever been in in my life. I can only imagine. Yeah. Is he any good? He's as good as his father, if not better. That's, if not better, that's yeah. saying a lot. So if you were to take, I mean, that's a mean, that's not mean. I mean, it's hard to compare. But I've, Steve's probably my age, perhaps a couple years older. He has everything going on that his dad had going on. And then he can sit down and pick up his Martin guitar and, and do a Beatles tune like a real pop singer would do it. 
which while his dad had breath to it, he, he didn't have the more modern thing. He wouldn't. It's age-related. Yeah. You know, you're not going to go backwards like that in your career. So Steve came up through it. It's also his folks divorced when he was a baby. So Hal March from the $64,000 question is a stepdad. And that's why he hyphenates his name. So he grew up out in a, near New York for a long time when the TV show was in New York. But when TV really ramped up, everybody went to L.A. So, you know, he grew up on the West Coast. He did a lot of other pop work on his own before he started reprising his dad's work later in life. He's strong. I mean, he's, it's, a, it's a shame that he's not more well-known than he is. So many greats like that, too. Yeah. Uh, have you ever run across a trumpet player by the name of Roger Thorpe? Well, sure. Well, Roger was the leader of the Sammy Kay Orchestra when I did that gig. That's so. right. I wasn't yeah. sure if he was still in the band when, when you were... He was my music theory teacher at Dutchess Community College, and I knew his wife and his children very well. They were friends of mine. Uh, he was a great player. He worked for uh, the Merv Griffin Orchestra at one point before Sammy Kay, I believe. Uh, interesting guy, really good musician. So you guys knew each other. Yeah, and we're still in touch. Oh. Roger's still with us. He's, he's uh, right across the river outside of New Paltz. Yeah, that's right, in New Paltz. There's so many other people I want to get to, people that you've worked with. You, you mentioned Adam Nussbaum a little bit earlier. How did that relationship begin? Uh, in the drum shop. We've been friends since I was 20 and he was 21. He, we've just remained friends over the years. And Adam, in that time frame that he was raising his kids, lived fairly near to here. You know, he lived down in uh, Orange County, not too far from here. Mm-hmm. They have a smaller place now, their retirement home out in Pennsylvania. So he's not in. He's not local to the area anymore, like he was a few months ago. You also played with the late Ed Deal. We were talking about that just before the show. I have many memories of Ed, as a lot of local musicians do. I used to bring all my. When I lived in Poughkeepsie, I brought all my guitars to him. Uh, how did you get involved with Ed? And you guys played in what a trio you had together? Yeah, right? well, Eddie, I knew obviously. Be, be, well, one, he's Eddie Deal, so all of us around here knew who he was. Sure, you know. Um, I got to know him after he straightened out my brother's guitars. You know, so he had done the luthier work. My brother has a beautiful old Martin D28 from oh. like, uh, and I have a set of Gretsch drums, same era, 74. We went to Europe to play for three weeks. So for our birthday presents that year, you know, our parents bought me a Gretsch drum set that goes inside itself. So I have a set of single-headed drums that slide inside each other. We were limited on what we could fly on the airplane, so I had a trap case and a floor tom-tom case. It was the entire drum set. And uh, my brother bought the D28 back then, went out to the Martin factory and picked them out, picked it out. So we both still have those instruments. Just one, there were gifts. Two, they're worth a fortune now. I love Gretsch drums. I like Slingerland even more, though, I have to say, especially the wooden ones. Drums are drums. Uh, is that right? No, not really. There's a big push back now, movement back. I don't mean to push back. I mean, everybody's kind of going back retro and playing older drums. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it's, the shell is thinner, more resonant. You know, Gretsch always had a thin shell, but a heavy rim, which kind of stopped the overtone series a little differently than everyone else's. Today, I'm fortunate. I'm, an, I'm a Canopus or Canopus drum endorser you know i'm on their little i'm on their website and they sound like old drums they sound fantastic what do you think of those old ludwigs they're 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 all very similar technology when you go back to then Hmm. so a rogers a ludwig a slingerland are all uh in that same 
category to my ear, and that's not a bad thing. They just are. You know? Well, not to geek out on drums or anything, right. but I, I mean, some people get into the minutia of, I don't know if you do or not, like the difference, say, between birch shells and maple. Well, they think they're into the minutia of it. That's just it. Yeah, I don't. And keep in mind, I built drums for half the freaking industry. That's <laughs> so, true. Um, to me, uh, there's there's some very predictable ways to go about uh, building a drum set or modifying a snare drum. To me, when guys get into the crazy drum set, that's that's their journey. The tonality of a drum is set by its type of wood it's made out of, the way the bearing edge is shaped, the head choice, and the rim choice. And it's that simple. There's nothing else to it. Everything else is marketing. You know, I mean, if you got a good Les Paul, you got a good Les Paul. It doesn't matter if it's from 1964 or uh, 1984. How many pearl inlays you have or whatever. Exactly. If you have a good one, you have a good one. You know, and that's the density of the wood. It's the right pickup combination. It's the wiring is right. I like that. I like the way you think, Tim. And I like the way you play. And I'd like our listeners to hear a little something that you play on. Can we listen to something? Sure. Have a little something you played on with Ed Deal? Great. The Eddie Deal stuff has a little background noise in it because, you know, it's taken from video. Okay. And it's uh, Lou Pappas on bass, who Lou lives right across the river from us where we are here. Yeah. It's, it's some fun music. It was Eddie's last gig with a trio. He did some duo, a few duo gigs after this, and he passed not, you know, within probably half a year of this recording. So it was good that we brought someone in to video it and have it as a record. The late, great Eddie Deal and Mr. Tim Herman on drums. Listen to this.
You know, we've played together a little bit, Tim. Not very much, but I think we did a gig one time. or Up in the snow belt, absolutely. Yeah, it was upstate New York, right on the Canadian border, I believe, right? Well, and... we, we weren't that far. We were up in the Tug Hill Plateau. Wow, you, you know upstate New York pretty well. It was a place called Whiskey Jacks. I remember that. And I remember, I think it was Ed Ryan on bass, Carl Allwire, myself, you, and there was a couple of uh, horn players, if I'm not mistaken. Mike, Mike came in and played a few with us. Mike Silas, who's a trumpet player, just retired as an educator out of the Arlington School District. He was good. Yeah. I remember him being very good. Yeah. And uh, Mike and I did a lot of work together. I do a lot of uh, summer stock theater work with him, and I did the Mohawk Mountain House ballroom dance gig with him for, oh, 15 years? That's what I like about you, Tim, is you're always up to something. One thing that you do is you're like a pit drummer in the area, right? You've worked at the Sharon Playhouse as a pit drummer, pretty much across the border here, and also uh, for SUNY New Paltz and stuff like that. How did you get into that? Well, that came from the whole reason I went to Sunny Igo way back in the beginning was to learn how to do that. And uh, that's up here. You know, Sharon Playhouse, you're, you're a, a, a big fish in a little pond if you can go in and play a show correctly and read a drum book. It's it's not, it's a very different skill set. Same with, you know, sitting inside a big band. It's a very different skill set that I use there than what I use when we're out with Ed and Carl and having fun up in the snow, in the snow country, you know, playing in the bar. Right. I, I do the Friday night. I do a couple Fridays a month still here locally at Junior's with my friend Johnny Delbeck-Gale and Jimmy Eslin. And, you know, that's a very different task for me. I can, I can do that with a beer in one hand and a stick in the other and have a great time all night long. That's how I like it. <laughs> yeah. So uh, you must be a very good sight reader at this point in your career. I was better at it when I was doing it all the time. So I would say my sight reading now isn't as sharp as it was in the 90s, but I, I can still sight read, yes. I heard a rumor somewhere. I, I, I don't really know much about this. I just heard somewhere uh, you can confirm or deny. Did you ever work with George Benson, or do you know him? Why do I associate your name with George Benson? Uh, because, <laughs> because of what we did to Pat Ryan. Oh, my goodness gracious. that That's the connection because I, I know that story. Tell that story. Yeah. That's a funny story. So uh, my friend Adam was playing a uh, playing at NJ Pack for uh, a big festival. George was on the bill. So afterwards, in the back in the green room where they put everything up where you can get your pictures taken, yeah. we convinced George that Pat was the workingest guitar player in the Hudson Valley from Poughkeepsie. And uh, that's where all those pictures came from. It was just us pranking uh poor pat through the oh, whole thing and pat's easily embarrassed <laughs> he's he studied under another local great jazz guitarist steve gravino yeah who i can't get to come on the show he's very shy for some reason he, i don't i don't know what the deal is but I, I, I keep working on him he's quiet he's a quiet guy but i love steve steve and i go way back we've been in bands together and everything i still can't get him to come on the show that's okay he taught Pat Ryan, and Pat has become quite a good guitar player. But, boy, he doesn't like to talk about it. He always... Well, as far as George Benson is concerned, Pat is the workingest, hottest guitarist in this area. <laughs> Trust me. Right, George told, told him, uh, 
says, you know, you're a, you're some hotshot guitar player or something, I hear. And Pat's like, you hear wrong. <laughs> I am not. And George, he says, George wouldn't believe me because that's what any great guitar player would say it was to his, George Benson. And and I, we had Adam <laughs> and Susan Nussbaum with their arms around him, around Pat and George and taking pictures. It oh. was the, <laughs> one of the best moments of my life. Absolutely. <laughs> and I like to uh, have fun like that. I mean, that kind of prank doesn't hurt anybody. Nah, you know? nah. Yeah, although you'll never speak with Pat again, I'm sure. <laughs> oh yeah, he he. I still talk. To he him. loved it. He loved it. He <laughs> knows it. He's listening to this. I bet you, Pat. You loved it. Come on, admit <laughs> it. It is really funny. What's not funny, shifting abruptly, is the coronavirus and how it has affected so many musicians in the Hudson Valley and their work schedules as musicians, or no matter what you do. Mm-hmm. How has this affected you, and how have you stayed? busy with your own work and what's the future hold around here uh well i don't know that we know what the future holds i think when this is over people have learned new ways to handle their business i think it's going to have a pretty heavy impact on some people having a place to play you know in general for me i mean my entire summer canceled of the five main stage productions at the sharon playhouse i would have done three they're they're done gone that's 10 weeks it's not my primary income playing i to earn my living as a musician drummer here in the hudson valley i would have to have a full-time teaching schedule and i choose to not teach so i keep a day job and uh, it has not impacted me horribly other than i'm not working as much as i usually do so since this maybe 10 gigs do you miss playing Oh, I've been playing. I played last Friday. I'm playing next Friday. You're out playing gigs? Yeah. Whereabouts do you play? I was at Junior's with Jimmy and Johnny. We've done it. Okay, so they've opened up a bit. Mm -hmm. Good. I've been out there playing. Uh, Some people are. Some of my musician friends are. Some of them aren't. You know, it just depends on... Sometimes I got the band outside. Sometimes we're inside and distance. The Tuesday night at uh, Mahoney's, the jazz night, is back. But it's not a jam session because you can't control a jam session. I mean, with coronavirus... You, you know, if a singer wants to come up and sing a tune, well, they better have their own microphone in mm-hmm. today's world. That's you right. Know, you, um, trumpet player, you know, the things going in the air, any horn player, the sputum and all that. Mm-hmm. You can't have that going on right now. So that's the real worry. Um, I've got some friends who teach at the university level. You know, they're going, everybody is basically going back at a half schedule or a from home only schedule. Yeah. You know, the, Young folks today that are music majors are really in a bad position. You can't do any large ensemble work. The chorus work has to be done outside with six feet between every person. Well, the, you lose all that ambience ear to ear when you do that. It's, mm-hmm. it's a rough time for people. Like Ed's daughter, I don't know what her decision was for the first semester to go back to school. For you know, She's a fabulous musician and music major. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's a good point. You must feel kind of safe behind the drums. I mean, it's one thing about a drummer. you got kind of a barrier a time like this. I don't know how much that, how much of a difference that makes. But oh, it, I think it makes a big difference. I don't, I don't feel uh, in the line of fire of it, let's say, from where I am, because I'm, at that point, I'm 10, 12 feet away from anybody. Yeah. You know, I mean, I might have Jimmy or Johnny at six feet from me, but everybody else is further. Yeah, and you're behind the kit or behind the set. I should say. Cause it's I, all I, the same. I don't care. You I, can call it whatever you I'm want. I'm with you. I, I used to call it a drum set, and now I call it a drum kit. But I like the old-fashioned... You know, well, it's hipper to say kit. I guess it is. Yeah. But I'm saying I'm going to say set for this for this <laughs> podcast. You can call it whatever you want. 
You know, we're running out of time, Tim. Before we go, I want to play something else. Can we play something where you're playing with the Sammy K Orchestra? Absolutely. So we've got these tracks that are from a PBS special that were that was recorded up at WMHT. It's a holiday special. Um, you know, unfortunately, when I look at look back at some of these, um, half this band has passed away. You know, they, they were older folks then, and I was a younger man then, you know, so just generationally as we move forward here, a lot of the folks we've known and loved coming up are no longer with us, and that goes for these recordings too. But it's interesting that you'll, you know, there's the singers, it's the classic true swing and sway with Sammy K Orchestra. The music is that music. Some of that paper was older than me. Well, I can't wait to hear it. This is Sammy K Orchestra with Tim Herman on drums. Let it roll. <laughs> Sammy Kay would say, and now these beautiful words by Ray LaMare. It isn't fair for you to taunt me. How can you make me care this way? It isn't fair for you to want me if it's just for a day. The dreams that can come true, dear Why is it you came into my life And made it complete You gave me just a taste of high life If this is love, then I repeat It isn't fair for you to taunt me you make me care this way it isn't fair for you to want me if it's just for today Tim, who are some of your favorite area drummers? Well, for me, the guys in this area would be Peter O'Brien, Jeff Siegel, and Joe Carroza. You know, they're the guys now. A couple of those guys certainly played a level above me and have also gone off into styles of music that I don't even care to play. Mm -hmm. um, some not. Uh, we're all friends. For drummers, unless I know somebody from the drum shop, I don't really know that many drummers because there's 
typically not two drummers ever in the same band. Yeah. So until my brother was doing an open mic that I helped him with for a year, or if I go in and help the guys do the Tuesday night jazz jam session, that's kind of where I meet the other local guys around here who are, who are maybe learning to change their styles. But some of the bigger ones, I mean, you've heard of Jerry Murata, you've heard of Gary Burke. Yeah, I'm but sure, I don't and... consider Jerry local, see. But And I know he is, and, and I, I know both the Murata brothers. The, the other gentleman you, you mentioned, Gary, I, I've only met once. I'm certainly aware of him, but we're in completely different genres. Yeah. You know, so I, I, I don't wouldn't run across them. Um, Jack DeJanette's here, but I mean, I've met Jack once in my life. I don't know the man. It was wonderful when I met him, but, you know, he's one of the, to me, one of the most influential drummers still alive today. No question. We're, we're trying to get him on the show. It's, He said, you know... I'll let you know. <laughs> I think we all know what that means. That means I'm busy. That means yeah. I'm busy. And that's fine. He is busy. He's to him and Dave Holland, they're still out there busy. Absolutely. It's incredible. You know, what's interesting about you, Tim, is you don't consider yourself a professional. You consider yourself a, a semi-professional. Correct. Explain that, if you would. Well, to me, a professional musician makes his living, supports his family, does everything by playing. You know, so, you know, that leaves a real short window of folks that you can call anymore a professional musician. So it'll be the touring guys, you know, the Marauders, right? And the, the quote-unquote studio drum scene is gone. There's a few guys that still operate within there, guys that play at a very high level. And often they have a home studio now, and they're doing it right at home, and it's going in over the Internet. I would consider myself a semi-professional because I have, you know, in my adult life, except for maybe four years of it, I have always held some sort of day job to keep myself through. To make my living here playing only, I would need a full-time schedule of private students, and I just choose to not do that. It all makes perfect sense, but for what it's worth, I see you as a professional anyway. So well, that's... I understand, and I've, and I've been fortunate to come in and out of the professional scene over the years. About once a decade, I usually get to play a fairly high-profile job. And now I was just thinking back on that prior to coming to see you. It's it's about 10 years since the last time I did something very high profile. Usually plops along about once every 10 years, I get a call out of nowhere from a contractor somewhere who said, Tim, it's me. This is the gig. This is the date. This is what it pays. Please tell me you're the guy. And, and that's kind of how I ended up on things like that. You know, I was fortunate. I worked with a group called the Gaylords and they had old hits. I'm going to take you back. First came the vine, then came the grape. And the Isle of Capri, they're all swing tune hits post-Korean War. I did Carnegie Hall with them. You know, and that was out of, it wasn't out of the blue. I had done some work with them through some other folks. But when that gig came up, they got on the phone and called the contractor who hired me with another band when we backed them up and said, I never ask a question like this, but may I have that drummer's phone number, please, in his name? Oh. Not... You know, so for me, it was fortunate. It means I gave them what they wanted when I worked with them. Um, for the rest of those guys that also anticipated that call, and I did not anticipate it, their feelings were maybe a little hurt because they weren't called, but they brought the rest of the band with them from the Midwest and, and all the way out west. They were uh, not Vegas, the other town to the north out there where everybody gambles. Reno? Reno. So they were a house band in Reno for years. And they were bit writers for the Rowan and Martin Laugh-In show. I mean, these guys were old school, funny, stand-up, comedy, incredible music. Think the Smothers Brothers, but it swings. 
and it's got an Italian flair. So, you know, I was fortunate I, I got to do that gig, and that was not on my list of things to do, and the type of music I play in the world I'm in, you don't think you're going to Carnegie Hall. Well, there's not a lot of semi-professionals I know that play there either. That sounds like a great gig, and I've seen you play before. I think you're a great drummer. It doesn't matter what you call yourself. You either got the goods or you don't, and you do. So. Yeah, I, I think, you know, for me, if you ask me about someone and I answer you with, oh, they're a great musician and they're drummers, that means I truly love the way they play sure, and, and appreciate what they do. It could be totally different to me, but if I answer you, that guy's a great musician, then you know, you can kind of gather from that. I have a lot of respect for them. I don't introduce myself to people as a drummer. I introduce myself to people as a musician. And they said, well, what do you play? I said, the drum set. Yeah, I like that. Musician first, drummer second, even though it's really one and the same. I kind of do the same thing. People ask what I do. I say I'm a musician, although songwriting is what I do first, and then maybe guitar guitar player or singer or something like that. I don't know. I don't really give a lot of time to thinking about it. I just do what I do, I guess. I've learned because in, in my old age, I've learned to uh, edit myself. And when I was younger, I was pretty easy to tell you what I really thought. <laughs> and and, and <laughs> And that's not always the right thing to do in life. You know, you can, it can come out, especially in me, I can have a very crass personality sometimes and it can come out like I'm being mean and I'm not. I'm just like, well, I don't care about that. I, you know, yeah. that's the answer you're going to give me is I don't care. It doesn't mean it isn't important. It's just not important to me. Tim, thanks so much for coming out today. I really appreciate it. It's good to see you. Uh, I love, uh, I love talking to musicians. That's what this show is about. Hudson Valley musicians. You're a great one, so thanks so much for being here. Well, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Anytime. Real good to see you. You're listening to The Rick Z Show. I'm your host, Rick Z, produced and engineered every week by Rusty Johnson. Click subscribe, people. We like followers. Come back next week, and I promise we'll have another talented Hudson Valley musician right here for you. And we'll see you then. (laughs) 